Welcome to the very first episode of What in the World broadcasted here at WERA 96.7 FM here in Arlington, Virginia. I am your host, Bumia Kenesotu, and joining me is Ambassador Brigitte, who is the Dean at George Washington Elliott School of International Affairs. Um, Ambassador Brigitte is our Africa dude. He has served at the State Department as well as USAID, and he is here to help us break down foreign policy in a way that it's understandable and most importantly, relevant to our everyday lives. It's so great to have you on the show, Ambassador. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Happy to be here. Uh, so first, before we jump into things, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. How did you get to foreign policy? Like as a kid, did you say, I want to be an ambassador when I grow up? What did what got you to foreign policy? Well, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a big Navy town. Um, and uh, in that time, you know, the Cold War was still very much raging. And um, I'd had a number of, uh, you know, people who lived around me that were um, that had been in uh, in the Navy and were uh, uh, naval officers. And I was very interested in, um, I guess, kind of like social studies and, you know, what I would now come to understand international relations and national security kind of stuff. Uh, as a kid, I had the whole G.I. Joe toy collection, uh, uh, which is probably sort of the earliest indication of my uh, interest in geopolitics. Uh, and um, uh, from there, um, just became more and more interested and became aware of uh, the Naval Academy. And also, I should say, my childhood hero was Colin Powell, and I wanted to grow up to be the Navy's answer to Colin Powell. So um, I didn't apply to anywhere else for college but the U.S. Naval Academy, and I got in and in October my senior year and uh, kind of went from there. That's awesome. Awesome. And so you were the uh, ambassador to the African Union under President Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? And uh, did you attend a lot of parties that were <laughs> awesome? It's funny. Um, first of all, there's no greater honor than representing your country abroad and to uh, have been an ambassador um, as a general proposition and certainly to have been an ambassador for a president like President Obama that was so committed to American engagement and so committed to American engagement in Africa, uh, helping to represent uh, the United States and being his personal representative to the African Union uh, at that moment in history was uh, a, a tremendous honor. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of parties. Uh, uh, here's something, you know, a fun fact most people don't know. Addis Ababa, which is where the African Union is located, is the third largest diplomatic city in the world. Uh, after New York and Geneva, because in addition to the 54 member states of the African Union, if you're a country from further afield, if you're Portugal or if you're Australia or whatever, and you want to talk to Africa, but you can't afford to put an embassy everywhere in every country on the continent, you will put one in Addis Ababa for sure. So um, in addition to meeting a lot of my African colleagues, we spend an awful lot of time talking with uh, other diplomats from all over the world. Awesome. That's great. And so now you are the dean at the Elliott School of International Affairs. And I know one of the things you're very passionate about is diversity in this space. Can you talk about some of your work that you've done to ensure that women and people of color enter this 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 field and that their voices are heard and and, and why it's important that we have even diverse voices in foreign policy to begin with. Well, let me start with the second question about why it's important. Um, 
America is a particularly unique country, unique in the history of the world, not because we are you know, richer um, or because we have more military might, but because we are a country that was founded on an idea. The idea being that all people are created equal. Uh, the idea that you know everyone should have a say in, uh, in, in how we govern ourselves as a people. And the idea that anybody from wherever you hail anywhere on the planet who accepts those ideals can come and be an American. Uh, and that is truly unique uh, amongst nations. So one of the best ways to be able to communicate that to the rest of the world is to ensure that the people that represent America abroad look an awful lot like the people that live in America itself. Uh, that is an incredibly powerful statement when you are uh, either talking to a country in you know, Southeast Asia or Central Africa or parts of Latin America that are grappling with their own issues of, uh, of ethnicity and to be able to have you know, an embassy country team uh, that looks like the United Nations, but everybody actually hails from the same country and uh, swears allegiance to the um, Stars and Stripes is a really powerful thing. So then the question is, uh, if you accept that principle, then how do you actually ensure uh, that people from all diverse backgrounds, you know, can think of a career in foreign affairs or a career in diplomacy uh, as something that is available to them, uh, something that's a real option for them? Um, it's not like a awful lot of things. You know, if your uh, father is a banker, if your mother is a lawyer, if your dad is a teacher, if your mom is a doctor, then, you know, most people, you know, the first professional exposure they have is what their parents do. Um, so in an environment, you know, particularly the State Department, as it said, you know, it has traditionally been, you know, uh, male, pale, and Yale, right? I mean, essentially that it has been such a uh, historically um, elite group of people that have represented America abroad, Um uh, there simply isn't much, frankly, uh, family historical precedent in many other communities of color, uh, many socioeconomic communities, regardless of color, that don't come from uh, coastal elite establishments. To even understand, even know that this is a career option. And I don't mean just the State Department, but any number of ways in which one can have a foreign affairs career, whether it be in the private sector or business or consulting or um, in uh, development assistance or any number of other things. So being able to educate people. Um, and I would say this, frankly, you know, certainly coming from, I, I remember very clearly um, when I decided that I wanted to go to the Naval Academy um, uh, amongst an awful lot of um, you know, family and friends in the African-American community in Jacksonville, Florida, I mean, the, the response was, you know, you are such a bright young man. Why would you want to go to the military? You know, you could be doing so many other things with your life. Um, so it frankly takes a certain um, uh, level of of confidence uh, to be able to say that this is something that we want to do, but also crucially, it takes a certain level of education, community education, to say to you know our people, our families, our, our relatives that you know this is a real career option. You know, you could actually really make a living doing it. You're actually going to sort of be okay, and you'll have an uh, have a career that's. Uh, very exciting, uh, and that serves your country, and that helps you to broaden your own horizons as well. Awesome. That, that's all very true, and I think your experience in Florida probably, um, and I, I haven't been to Florida many times, but um, the diversity in Florida, I know there's lots of um, communities there who have connections to the military, and, and you have a military family as well, and so I'm sure when you go out into the world, you bring that perspective with you, um, having come from a military family. Actually, yes, a bit of correction. I actually don't come from a military family. Oh, so so okay. my, my father was a doctor and my mother 
as an educator. Okay. So they were like, where did you get this bizarre sort of, you know, chromosome that made you interested in the military? Why aren't you going to be a doctor, you know, or, or if you can't be a doctor, at least be a lawyer, right? I mean, so why can't you do like one of those sorts of things? So, and um, and I remember very clearly, God bless them, I mean, from the time I was 14, I was like boresighted on going to the Naval Academy. My parents desperately tried to get me to consider their options. I remember they took me to uh, one of these Harvard alumni events. Um, my parents didn't go to Harvard. My dad went to Morehouse. My mom went to Florida and and were like, look, Ruben, you should at least consider this, right? So there was this Harvard alumna sort of talking about how great Harvard was and all these students, Harvard, Harvard wannabes sitting around her listening to sort of her every word. And all I could think about while I was sitting there was, why would anybody go to Harvard when you could go to the United States Naval Academy? Nice. Um, which... You know, clearly it was a demonstrative. That's where I you know, right. thought I needed to be. Awesome, awesome. Well, the Naval Academy produced an awesome human being and, and um, certainly an, a, a value add to, to our nation. So thank you for that. Uh, let's jump right in. So in your introduction, you mentioned a lot of phrases and terms, and I want to just level set for our audience who has no idea what the world of foreign policy is like. Define what we mean by foreign policy, just in general terms. What do we mean by foreign policy? In general terms, we mean how does our country go about its business with other countries around the world, okay. right? So um, we are a country um, that you know governs itself by its own sets of rules and laws, but uh, we are not an island, either figuratively or literally. Um, you know, if you're driving a car, it you know might have been produced in the United States. Most likely, it may also have been produced elsewhere. Even if it was produced in the United States, it may have been produced with parts that are coming from elsewhere. Um, if you're living anywhere in the United States, you're almost certainly living around people who may be you know first generation or coming from somewhere else. If you're working in a factory in Alabama or Minnesota, you're probably making something that is being shipped abroad to be sold somewhere else in the world. Um, if you're driving your car, there's at least a 50-50 chance that the oil, that uh, the gasoline that you're driving in your car today came from somewhere other than the United States. I mean, the, 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 the links are enormous, right? So, um, and if you ever want to get a, get a passport and, you know, see another part of the world or, or send your kid off to go see somewhere else, you know, if they get in trouble, there's going to be an American embassy there somewhere whose job it is to care for American citizens. Awesome. So, um, whether it's, you know, really kind of high-end, big stakes, you know, questions about how do you, you know, create treaties to address, you know, climate change, because that's something the United States can't do on itself, or or how do you, you know, make sure we don't all blow ourselves up, you know, with uh, through with nuclear weapons and trying to convince some sort of way to stabilize it, or whether it's something as small as, you know, I'm sending my, you know, uh, the girl who I once thought was my baby, but now is ready to go to college, and she wants to go study abroad in, you know, Spain, and she lost her passport and or something, and somebody, some other person's got to be there to help her, right? And everything in between. Um, that is what foreign policy basically is. And foreign policy has sort of three prongs that we talk about academically, and I hope that our listeners will roll with me just for a couple of minutes mm -hmm. as we get as we get a little deeper here. But there are three prongs that we think about. There's the development aspect of foreign policy, meaning foreign assistance, the money, our taxpayer dollars going out to help another country. There's diplomacy, which is something you just touched on, which is how we interact with other countries politically, economically. And then there's defense, which is what we term national security, how we protect our borders and our people, right? Talk about how here in the United States, those three pieces operate and how that impacts our 
lives. And you touched on it a little bit with our the cars, for example, that has a lot to do with economic diplomacy in some way. But just talk about those three pieces in, in basic terms and how that impacts our lives in ways that maybe we don't even notice. Sure. Well, I will take issue with one thing you said, and that is that the defense piece is not national security. All three of them are national security, Fair defense, point. diplomacy, and development. Fair now, the defense piece is something that I think most Americans are most familiar with because they will have known somebody either currently or in their family history who served in the military, right? Mm-hmm. So in the easiest uh, explanation, uh, the ability of the United States to use force uh, outside of its borders, either to defend um, its interests or to defend its citizens. Um, so, you know, there's a, a bad something, you know, Beirut explodes and we have to go evacuate American citizens or out of Liberia or some other place. Um, or we have to respond to a terrorist attack. Um, and there are different ways in which you want to do that, right? I mean, that all, all of that is basically the, uh, the defense uh, portion of the three-legged tool that we talked about in terms of defense, diplomacy, and development. Um, so that's defense. Diplomacy is basically our ability to solve problems with other countries in a uh, non-military manner. And there are, you know, big picture things that one sees. So when you see, for example, President uh, Trump today, as we do this broadcast, is in uh, is in France uh, for Bastille Day celebrations, or once a year when the world leaders come to uh, New York to go to the UN General assemblies, I mean, those kind of, or the, you know, uh, high stakes negotiations on the Iran nuclear deal, the Obama administration, that's like the big stuff. There's all kinds of stuff. It's like an iceberg, right? I mean, so diplomacy, like the stuff that most people see is one-tenth of one percent of the total scope of all the other things that we're negotiating and dealing other countries with, whether that is trying to access and negotiate basing rights for our military around the world, or trying to uh, negotiate trade agreements, or try to sort of negotiate disputes in trade agreements so we can sell goods abroad and we can figure out the best terms for uh, for other countries to sell goods to us, uh, or whether you're talking about um, you know some value things that we care about, you know whether or not uh, countries are abusing their own citizens in ways that are inconsistent with. Um, uh, mutually agreed upon ideas about you know democracy or torture or those those sorts of things. So that's the diplomacy piece. The development piece, frankly, is is something that uh, people most Americans are probably the least familiar with, but probably could understand and kind of get more easily. And development is basically how we help other countries improve their own social and economic capability on the premise that one, uh, helping other other countries develop themselves actually tangibly helps us uh, and also because it is consistent with you know the values that we do so let me kind of give you a couple examples on the first one so you may recall a couple of years ago we had a massive scare uh, with uh, the outbreak of a deadly virus called Ebola in West Africa. Uh, they were basically in three countries, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, Liberia, and Guinea, Conakry. Um, now, this virus had existed in multiple parts of Africa before, and they had always been contained reasonably quickly. Uh, and in fact, this current outbreak that was you know, most serious in those three countries also had uh, outbreaks in Nigeria, your home, your, the country of your family, and also in uh, a little bit in Mali and a little bit in Senegal. And all those three other uh, uh, outbreaks were very, very quickly contained. So what was the difference between those three and the three countries where the outbreak was worse? And the basic difference was uh, that those three countries uh, where the outbreaks were worst had the weakest healthcare systems. Mm. 
uh, in part because uh, two of the three of them uh, had recently had kind of like civil wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and the failure of those systems to be able to uh, deal with this outbreak, which they had not experienced before, not only threatened their lives, but potentially threatened to spread across the continent and back to the United States into Europe, right? So there's a very direct obvious clear connection diseases don't know borders they don't have passports they don't say you know oh, yeah, we're, we're we're good here in you know cape bear we're there's not no going like policy exactly. where the disease right. can, exactly. can't go they will follow the vectors and, <laughs> right, and, and, right. And, and in a world where you know you could travel across the world in a jet aircraft and 24 hours lots of other things right it is, it is absolutely materially in our interest to help other countries develop their healthcare systems to help other countries develop educational systems so they have education educated populations to help other countries develop their own economy basic stuff like can you get a road that connects from where the farmers grow their 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 fruit to a market where they can you know sell them not only internally but abroad right so their strawberries could get to our exactly. our, our tables and right. refrigerators because what's happening for example is when you see like these massive numbers of people that are leaving um uh, uh, both the Middle East and Africa to get to Europe, uh, with the exception of the Syrians, most of them are leaving simply for economic opportunities, right? And I've met these people. I've actually sat down and talked with, you know, uh, migrants that are, you know, prepared to take a very dangerous crossing from a tiny country called Djibouti, which is in mm-hmm. East Africa, to cross the Red Sea, where they knew there was a real risk that they would die and be eaten, you know, by sharks in the waters. But for them, that was a preferable risk than staying uh, wherever they were where they saw absolutely no hope for themselves. So wouldn't it be better for everybody, right, if we could help these young people develop their own economies uh, and stay where they are? Because also, frankly, if they're not going to be leaving to look for educational opportunities, they're also ripe for terrorist recruitment, uh, as you see in northern Nigeria and see elsewhere. So those are the three pieces, uh, defense, diplomacy, and development, and all three of them have a role to play in uh, securing our country and advancing our interests abroad. Yeah. I totally agree. And one thing I want our listeners to understand, and, and you can help cl- clarify this, is, you know, the end game for every country, I believe, is to protect their borders and, and their people. But, you know, as you mentioned, there may be other goals, right, to trade, um, to spread certain ideas that we think would be good for 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 the world or and there are theories around this. Um, some theories say, you know what? Everyone's out there just for themselves. It's the survival of the fittest. And you've got to be careful of the big bad wolf out there that could potentially harm us. Mm-hmm. And there are other theories that say, not quite. Mm-hmm. There are nations out there, but they have rules and laws and systems Mm-hmm. that generally want to create peace. Right. Where are we today as a as a country? Do you think we're at the former end of this idea of everybody's sort of out to get us or are we where 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 are we where do you believe we are today? Well, let me talk first a little bit about, you know, what people what, you know, uh, professors of international relations will call sort of theories of IR and make this very sort and of IR is international, international relations. relations, right? Which is basically a way of a study of how, like, you know, uh, the world, the countries, you know, operate with each other. I mean, the easiest way to think about it is just like in your everyday life. 
people have different ideas of, you know, human nature. Are people basically good? Are people mm-hmm. basically bad? People have different ideas of the way government works. I mean, do you think that government can actually be a useful force in helping to solve problems by, you know, providing things like, you know, firemen and police and education healthcare. and healthcare, or do you think that basically um, people are better off to following their own um, standing on their own two feet, right? And, and government just kind of gets in the way, right? So just like there are these kind of basic ways of understanding the way in which our society works, uh, basic ways of understanding how people engage with each other, and based on how you decide where you fall on that, right, will lead you to all different sorts of ways in which how you decide you want to interact in the world. Do you want to have get a job in the private sector, you know, making as much money as you can, or do you want to spend your time, you know, helping to make society a better place by being a teacher or by launching being a your podcast, own, launching a podcast, right, right, <laughs> right, or whatever it may be. So similarly, there are different ways of thinking about how the world is ordered and how it is best ordered. So one way to think about it is uh, you have countries, there's an idea called sovereignty, which is basically like every, just like, you know, if you have a house, nobody outside of the house can tell you what to do. You, you don't tell anybody else what to do in their house. That's basically the idea, right? No other country can tell us what we do inside our country. We don't tell other people what to do. And by the way, uh, whereas we have things we want to do, we want to be able to sell as many goods outside the United States as we can. We want to be able to, um, you know, dominate our competition or decrease competition inside the United States. Uh, other countries see, see the same way, and because there is no world government or shouldn't be a world government, then it's survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. Right? That is one way of thinking about the world, and that way of thinking about the world is called realism. There's another way of thinking about the world, which is that. Um, actually, as a general proposition, um, just like people are better off if they can find ways to cooperate with each other as opposed to fighting with each other all the time, countries are some of the best off you know, doing the same thing. So if we can agree on a set of rules, right, uh, that everybody will more or less you know, uh, adhere to, whether that is how much carbon we're going to put in the atmosphere or whether or not or when you can use force to you know, resolve disputes, then that is a better thing. And that view is largely called liberalism. Uh, there's a third view called constructivism, which basically is that what really matters is what people think. Mm-hmm. And basically what really matters is like the ideas you put out there. It's sort of like the fuzziest, fuzziest thing. So broadly speaking, certainly in American, um, American foreign policy tradition, we have gone back and forth between sort of more realist and more sort of like, you know, liberal or idealist. Uh, so was another sort of way of calling that, that school of thought. So there is zero doubt that in the history of American foreign policy since World War One, since Woodrow Wilson, America's sort of major triumphant entry into this in the world stage, we are probably as far on the realist spectrum as we have ever been. Really? Um, and I think, for example, you know the the, the president's uh, inaugural speech uh, when he said President, Trump. President Trump's inaugural speech when he said, you know, the the world will know that from now on it is America first. America first. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president's national security advisor, General H.R. McMaster, and his secretary of treasury, um, Secretary Mnuchin, put an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago in which they basically said, in this debate between whether or not there is a competitive uh, environment in the world, or there's a cooperative environment, we see it as competitive and we embrace that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, there's no way to argue that this, and particularly, frankly, um, as this administration has cast doubt on the importance of our, you know, longstanding um, partnership organizations like NATO or like the UN or whatnot, um, 
it's clear um, that this administration feels more strongly in the realist camp and probably more strongly in the realist camp than any other administration that we can think of. So is it f- it, would it be fair to say that, you know, thinking about the realist sort of competitive perspective that you cited, is there a benefit to that? If you're, say, a farmer um, in Oklahoma and you've got some goods you want to sell, you know, could a competitive, more realist perspective benefit you? Well, first of all, in my view, realism versus idealism is not a debate for whether or not we put America first or the world first. In my view, all of these ways are thinking about or, or different ways of thinking about how can we best advance our interest in the world? Are we better off advancing our interest by trying to find ways to cooperate with other countries? Mm. Are we better off advancing our interest by finding ways to use our power over other countries as opposed to cooperation? Uh, and the basic idea of realism is that the most important thing in international affairs is power in the ability to exert it over others. So if you're the farmer in Iowa and you're trying to sell grain or you're trying to sell beef, right? Sure, you could absolutely say, you know what, we're not taking any beef imports from anywhere else. We don't want any you know, corn that's grown in Brazil to compete with us in the United States because we want to protect this farmer. But that farmer is going to want to sell his beef or his corn somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And if we don't find ways that are fair for other countries to be able to sell their products to us, they will absolutely prevent us from selling our products to them, mm-hmm. right? So that's just human nature. So then the question is, as a general proposition on a matter of trade, right, what is the best way in which we can cooperate with each other? Now, the view of this administration, of President Trump, is essentially, as a general proposition, global trade is bad and Americans have gotten a raw deal on it. We've actually given much more to the rest of the world than we've gotten back. And there certainly is an argument at a minimum that while the uh, way in which we have seen free trade completely you know, um, grow and flourish over the last 30 years uh, has done a lot to make an awful lot of Americans rich, but it has not necessarily helped our middle class, for example, get sort of higher wages as in sort of let them. We've seen an awful lot of manufacturing jobs that used to be here go, or it means we've had to sort of shift other ways. In my view, that is not a fault of free trade because as I said, we have seen the the nation's wealth Mm -hmm. increase. It is more, in my view, a fault that we have not figured out domestically how to ensure that the wealth that is generated from that actually goes to help support other things like education, like improved infrastructure, uh, like tax credits to invest in next generation technology and next generation manufacturing to help people to actually compete and thrive, middle class people compete and thrive in this global economy. That's a great question and a segue um, to the next topic, which is how does the United States balance its need to take care of home and also the very real issues abroad many people uh and i've gotten questions you know who people have said we've supported the rebuilding of europe but here at home african americans didn't get reparations or our school system is a mess how do we how do how does our nation how do leaders balance those two 
Well, first of all, I have always rejected the idea that we have to somehow decide between whether or not we're going to engage in the rest of the world, whether or not we're going to uh, uh, help make our own country be as prosperous as it can be. A great country can do both. A great country should do both. And the reason a great country should do both is the extent to which we are positively engaged in the rest of the world obviously impacts how prosperous we are here at home for all the reasons we just talked about. So, but there's also zero question that we have some significant domestic challenges that we have to address. We have, you know, the highest rate of income inequality that we've ever had. Uh, despite the fact that we are the richest country in the world, uh, we don't have any, we are nowhere close to having the best life expectancy, the best uh, uh, maternal mortality, the best education system. There are any number of countries around the world that outperform us and all of that. There are other countries in the, around the world that have somehow figured out to ensure one way or the other that every one of their citizens has quality access to healthcare. We have not figured that out. And that's not, and that's, you know, without debating about whether or not you should have a more sort of government centered solution or more private sector solution. Bottom line is we haven't figured it out, right? I mean, that's genius. Last time I checked, we're all human, right? Uh, and we're all somehow going to need healthcare right, at some right. point in our lives, right? We all get uh, sick, right? Yeah. So, um, so I actually think one of the things that bothers me an awful lot is that uh, we conflate these two problems. We say that you know we can't solve any problem outside of the world unless we've completely solved all our problems at home. And I think that we have plenty of bandwidth to do both, and actually we have to, and the fact that we are engaged around the world still doesn't frankly um, answer the question why we can't solve the politics to deal with our own problems at home. Thank you. That's the, Thanks for making that clear, and I hope our listeners are open to that and Later on in, the, in with this podcast, we'll talk more about some issues that, that, are, that cross both worlds. So I want to segue into um, Americans, the American public and how they interact with foreign policy. Uh, there's a survey that was put out there uh, by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs that basically said that um, when it comes to protecting America, the majority of Americans agree that the United States should be actively engaged abroad. Uh, this was 64% of the, the respondents said said that we should play an active role in, in foreign affairs. And so in your observation, you've had many years, how is this, how is this um, opinion or how has Amer- how is the role of Americans engagement in foreign policy and, and changed over the years? Um, I can specifically remember seeing a video of many African-Americans back in the 60s protesting at the UN um, on behalf of many African countries or, well, then they were colonies, but they were trying to become independent from their colonizers. And you had many African-Americans here who were at the UN protesting. And you certainly saw in the 90s with South Africa, the movement here in the United States where many citizens were very concerned about apartheid and what was happening. are we what what's going on today and how do you feel Americans engage or don't engage with foreign policy? Well, the good news is that there's an awful lot of uh, history of Americans uh, getting engaged in various issues all around the world, whether it be you know girls' education in Afghanistan or raising money to fight you know hunger in East Africa or uh, trying to find ways to address you know global warming or trying to find ways to address um, 
uh, support for endangered species all around the planet. So that's all very, very positive. And frankly, I think with the advent of social media and the ability to sort of travel around the world more frequently, we're seeing more and more Americans do that. Um, and then also, uh, there are large numbers of Americans who served in the U.S. military uh, abroad uh, and have gotten exposure to other uh, cultures as a result of that. Um, the downside, uh, in my view, is that we are still a very isolated country, uh, despite that. If you take a look at you know the U.S. news um, on any given night, you know, either cable or on mainstream news, um, you will not see on our news channels many of the stories that are actually helping to shape the rest of the world. Uh, we tend to be very, very internally focused. And combine that with the fact that, frankly, most Americans still don't have a passport. Most Americans still never travel outside the United States. Uh, for sure, uh, most Americans do not speak a language other than English. Uh, and uh, all of these sorts of things, frankly, uh, serve to, to distance the average citizen from the rest of the world, um, which I think is um, uh, uh, unfortunate. Uh, so I think that it, it, it helps to... Um, uh, uh, or if it, it does not help uh, uh, most Americans to understand why our global engagement is so important and how it actually affects their lives. Uh, and I think if more people spent more time even just sort of reading or paying attention to sort of foreign news services, they'd have a much better understanding of, of why it's so important for us to engage. What's one place you go to get some great foreign policy, foreign affairs, international affairs news that's unbiased or that just is sort of very clear and to the point what's a, what would be a great place for someone to start bbc is great awesome um they're um, probably the, the the best global news organization super independent um they have correspondents all around the world i mean obviously you know they're in english but they also have a number of uh, other foreign language services as well um and in the age of the internet you know there's no excuse not to access it right? bbcnews.com and i don't work for them so i'm not getting a check i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> and we are not we're not here on this show promoting uh, uh, promoting uh, any news station. We're just simply providing a resource for our listeners to, as you said, get out there and, and learn more. Um, and before we wrap up here, you know, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to bring this home for people and make this. And we've done this already a little bit here, but there's an article uh, that just came out in The Guardian written by Marcella Escobari, How Foreign Aid Helps Grand Rapids, Michigan. And she has an interesting quote here that I want to read. And it's in regards to Central America's problems and how it directly impacts um, Americans. She says, when drug cartels cannot co-opt local governments or when they can co-opt local governments and 95% of crimes in these nations go unpunished, criminals can more easily transport drugs into the United States. Instability in the region also drives migration to the United States. Conversely, a secure and stable region will continue to import goods and services from the United States. So she makes a, a great connection. If there's instability in Central America, it creates migration flows to the United States, also creates potential drug problems. You're from Jacksonville, Florida. So connect it back, connect this issue to Jacksonville, Florida. Connect, connect let's say, what's happening, some issues happening in Africa to Jacksonville, Florida. Why should anybody care? What, what's, what's the significance? Well, um, first of all, like one of the things that's interesting, if you, so if you take that quote, one school of thought would be, well, fine, if there's all this instability, build the wall. 
right? I mean, keep everybody out and then we won't have uh, have any problems. Um, the challenge with that approach, right? Even if you accept the fundamental principle is that we should basically be controlling our own borders um, better, um, that still um, our we are still engaging and moving back and forth uh, with people all the time. And, and frankly, the other thing that that quote suggests is that for every problem that we see as Americans, there's actually sort of a mirror image of it on the other side of the planet, right? So we complain, for example, about drugs coming to the United States from Latin America or elsewhere. And what the Latin Americans say, well, there'd be no drugs flowing if there wasn't a demand in the United <laughs> States, right? So why don't you people work first on, you know, dealing with why people uh, get on drugs well, to begin with, right? And then also um, why all these weapons, you know, we don't sort of make firearms in Central America. You know, they're all sort of made and a lot of them are coming from, from the States and flying for the South, right? So so there are mirror images to these problems, which is why it's vitally important that we cooperate uh, with our partners and why, and to the to the point uh, that Marcella raised, right? I mean, absolutely, to the extent that we can help uh, develop democracy and a culture of better governance in El Salvador, it absolutely will uh, help make the United States and my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida more secure. Thank you so much for for that clear connection. It's really helpful. I think hopefully our our listeners feel as excited as I do about that. about that explanation and really seeing it in their, in their day to day lives. Um, We're going to get you out of here because you've got, a job to do. Uh, but I wanted to thank my engineer, Antonio, for stepping in and helping me today as we as we launched this first episodes. I want to thank my friends and colleagues who reviewed my notes, my logo, and provided feedback and questions on social media to help me tee up some of these topics. A lot of what I asked you came from just ordinary people from around the country who were excited and just wanted to know what in the world is going on out there and why does it matter? Why does it matter to me? Um, and we talked earlier, a big music fan here. And so uh, the outro the tradition here on the show will be for us to have an outro um, uh, selected by one of our guests. And tell us about the song you selected and why. So I chose In the Name of Love by U2, a song that's over 30 years old. And I chose it because uh, for two reasons. One, it's kind of the philosophy of my life. Um, I think that uh, we're better off as a general proposition uh, when we are powered in, uh, in, uh, by love. And that's not an airy-fairy notion because sometimes love requires you to be courageous. Uh, sometimes it requires you to be strong. And that's true not only in our family lives, but also in our social life. And I also love it because it tells some very interesting international affairs stories <laughs> uh, in, in the lyrics uh, from, you know, Bloody Sunday in uh, in uh, in Northern Ireland to um, you know the assassination of ML King. So I thought it'd be a great uh, way to exit the show. So foreign policy is in everything, even in our music, which will hopefully be an episode uh, in the future. So thank you again, Ambassador. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I hope my listeners continue to stay engaged on social media. You can find What in the World on Facebook. Just search What in the World podcast, and we'll pop up. You can also go to WERA.FM where you will find this recording as well. So thank you again and thank you, Antonio, for your help. And until next time.
Thank you again for tuning into What in the World. Remember, you can listen to the show on WERA.FM and find us on Facebook. Uh, Just do a search on What in the World. Also, I wanted to take this time to give a special shout out to Chachi Carvalho, um, whose song Asiki no Tavive is the theme song for this show. Asiki no Tavive is Portuguese Creole for This Is The Way We Live. Uh, Chachi is a Cape Verdean hip-hop artist from my home state of Rhode Island. Shout out to Rhode Island. Um, And this song is inspired by the lifestyle of Cabo Verde, which is Cape Verde in in Creole. And it's inspired by the country, its beautiful culture, the food, and its people. Um, Chachi describes this song as an affirmation that you are where you are supposed to be in this world. Be proud of who you are and what you are. And you can find more of Chachi's music at chachihiphop.com. That's C-H-A-C-H-I hiphop.com, chachihiphop.com. Please take a listen to his music. If you like to groove and dance, um, this will be the album. His album uh, is awesome. It's great. It's called um, Cape Verde in America. It's a great, a great piece of, of work and um, just would love to support our local artist and, and happy that Chachi agreed to, to support this show. So we'll head back into What in the World.